0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at tiaa.org/promises pay off. Hey everyone, I'm Leah Smart, and welcome to In the Arena, a LinkedIn self-development podcast. Our show explores the vulnerable aspects of the human experience to inspire transformation. Hey everybody, this week I'm talking to Bruce Feiler. He's a New York Times bestselling author who's written 16 books. He's an American TV host, and his most recent book is called Life is in the Transitions. I came to Bruce's work last year and was intrigued by the fact that his book about life transitions was occurring while the proverbial rug was being slipped out from under all of us. We were at the beginning of COVID, the global pandemic. We were experiencing the highlight of more racial injustice here in the US. We were seeing work being fully redefined. Bruce's book combines thousands of hours of interviews to help us understand what happens when life does transition and how we can work through some of the major ones that we have. He calls these transitions that happen in our lives disruptors. And he says that when a disruptor hits at a certain magnitude that's exponentially worse than our typical disruptors, it becomes a lifequake. Now Bruce found that lifequakes involve a fundamental shift in the meaning, purpose, or direction of a person's life. Kind of like BCE and then CE our life gets marked by a before and after. In his research, he found that there are 30 to 40 life disruptors the average adult will experience. Remember, disruptors are not life quakes. We have everyday disruptors or more normal disruptors, and those happen every 12 to 18 months. They can range from a relationship, beginning or ending, health issues, aging parents, children, and the many phases they go through, and work, among other things. He found a total of 52 life disruptors. Now, in this conversation, Bruce highlights that he wants to rebrand the idea of life disruptors and lifequakes. They're not all bad, as cringy as they sound, because what he found is that there is a real human ability to navigate them and then turn them into constructive experiences. Takes me back to that cliche phrase, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But the way Bruce looks at it is that lifequakes really do redefine what he calls the ABCs of meaning. Now ABC is an acronym and it stands for the order in which we look at making meaning in our lives. A is agency. So that's relating to how much autonomy we have, how much control we feel we have over our lives. B is belonging. It's really being a part of a group, a community or an active family member. And C is cause. It's about doing something that has an impact on the part of the world that we want to contribute to. Now, at any point in our lives, we all have different orders that we place our ABCs. And when life transitions, something changes. It rebalances what we're in need of and what we're seeking to create meaning in our lives. So maybe after a lifequake, you go from prioritizing agency and autonomy to truly aligning and joining in with a community. So your life becomes one with that group. Or after you lose a job, maybe you recognize that having autonomy and making your own decisions so you can call your own shots is really what matters. Either way, we reevaluate and shape shift after a lifequake for the next phase. And Bruce says he titled his book, Life is in the Transitions, because in fact, there is a richness of life in the middle of these times. Today, we need to change the way we look at our lives. They simply are not all linear. We've got to reset our expectations about life while we stop pathologizing nonlinear events in our lives or the lives of others. It's okay for things to happen in a different order than we are told they will because what we were told simply doesn't account for the element of surprise, which according to Bruce's research, life serves us every 12 to 18 months. My big takeaway here, no one can define what it means for you to have a normal life because the normalcy is based on a linear model that simply isn't true for all of us. We're not all on some conveyor belt. I don't know about you, but a good number of people that I admire and feel inspired by certainly are not leading linear lives. And while there's nothing wrong with living in this way, we simply must redefine how we perceive and judge those whose lives are not in a linear format. We say they fell off track or they're lost, but truly, I think they're more normal than a lot of us. All right, that's it from me. Grab Bruce's book, wherever books are sold. And he's also got a newsletter called The Nonlinear Life. So feel free to subscribe to that through his website. See you in the arena. Bruce, so great to have you here. Thank you for joining me in the arena.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me my high school yearbook quote in the arena.
0: <laughs> I love it. I love it. Was, wait, what, was it actually the it full was, It was Roosevelt? actually
1: the full Theodore Roosevelt. The credit belongs to the man in the arena. I didn't even realize that until you said that out loud. I've been waiting for this conversation since I was a senior in high school. I don't know about you.
0: <laughs> I, clearly before I was born, too. <laughs> I've been waiting for it. <laughs> it was planned. Yeah, the name came from Brene Brown, who shared, and I think maybe repopularized in a different group, the quote from Theodore Roosevelt. It's been the reason that we do what we do is getting people into conversations where we talk about real vulnerable things. Um, so we'll do that today. And for those of you who haven't heard of Bruce Feiler or haven't read any of his books, Bruce is a 15-book author. The book we're going to be talking about today is called Life is in the Transitions, which came out in 2020 when we were all in the midst of Lots of transitions as we continue to be today. But one of his most popular books that also became a TV show was The Council of Dads. And that came out because of Bruce's diagnosis with a rare form of cancer where he asked a group of other dads to help him parent his two daughters and wanted to also then share that story with the world.
1: Well, I appreciate your bringing that up. And and in a lot of ways, that experience bridges both the book, The Council of Dads, and the book we're going to talk about today, Life is in the Transitions, because I was diagnosed at 43 with an adult onset pediatric cancer. And in many ways, this was the original nonlinear event in my life that made me kind of realize that life doesn't always happen in order and in the order that you expect or that we've all been led to believe. And in some ways, it is that original cancer that produced my interest in how we all kind of navigate these life experiences, even if I just sort of take a step back. So I grew up in Georgia, and I left there in the uh, 80s and went to Yale, left there, went to Japan, uh, as you know, and started writing letters home, like, you're not going to believe what happened to me. That was on crinkly air mail paper, that's how old I am. But when I got back to Georgia six months later, everyone said, I loved your letters. And I was like, great, have we met? And it turned out that my grandmother had Xeroxed them and passed them around, and they went viral in a sort of old fashioned sense of the word. And I thought, I should write a book about this. And you just mentioned that I've been doing this for a long time. I sold my first book 32 years ago, and I've never held a job since. So in my 20s, I wrote books about Japan and England. I spent a year as a circus clown. In my 30s, I went back and forth to the Middle East, writing books and making television about the Bible and spirituality and interfaith relations. And this was, in the context of the conversation we're about to have, a kind of linear life. Like I figured out what I wanted to do. I did it for no money. I had some success. I got married and had children. But then in my 40s, I was just walloped by life. First, I got this cancer, as I said, at 43, when my kids were uh, only three years old. That was the year of the recession. And I almost went bankrupt. My family owned a bunch of real estate in Georgia. And then my dad, who got Parkinson's, got very depressed and tried to take his own life six times in 12 weeks. And so it was the back to back of these sort of horrendous life experiences. And I felt life was coming at me from all different directions. And for a long time, I didn't know how to tell the story of all of this. I didn't want to. Um, But when I did, and you mentioned vulnerability. And when I sort of started to tell what was happening to me, it turned out that everybody else had a story about how their life was upended in one way or another. And I sort and I literally called my wife one night and I said, something is going on. Like no one knows how to tell their story anymore. And I wanted to do something to help. And that's what ultimately launched me in to the experience that has brought us here today.
0: Your story is really powerful. And I would love for you to share what the definition of a life quake is as you were alluding to, the back-to-back kind of whoppers that hit us in life. But maybe you can share a little bit about how you discovered this. And and did you go out looking for lifequakes or did you just go out looking for life stories?
1: Well, I love that question. It's a very perceptive one because uh, I will say that I didn't know what I was looking for. And in part, I didn't know what I was looking for because there's not a language Uh, to describe these kinds of events. So To start in the present, what is a lifequake? A lifequake is what we're all going through right now. It is this kind of huge tsunami of change that can lead to a period of being overwhelmed and doing nothing or of growth and renewal. And it often, they, these quakes. might come in clumps. So just when you decide to leave your job, you know, you, you total your car, right? Just when you, your child has an anxiety disorder, it turns out that your mother-in-law needs cataract surgery, right? So these things tend to clump. I call that a pileup. But yes, I got interested in lifequakes because I was going through this lifequake. Now, what I did about it was to go and talk to people. And so I set out and I did sort of the oldest thing imaginable. I went and talked to people. I, crisscrossed the country and collected what became hundreds and hundreds of life stories of Americans in all 50 states. That's people who lost limbs and lost homes and changed careers and changed religions, changed genders, got sober, got out of bad marriages. And at the end of the day, I had a thousand hours of interviews, 6,000 pages of transcripts. And so while that was an old thing, I then did this kind of newfangled thing positive psychologist in your soul will relate to is I then gathered a team of 12 people and we spent a year coding these stories, looking for patterns and takeaways that could help all of us in times of change. I would say I learned three things. Number one, the linear life is dead. Okay, the idea, the expectation that we're going to have one job, one relationship, one spirituality, one sexuality, one source of happiness from adolescence to assisted living is deader than it's ever been. And it's important to say that actually turns out to be a historical anomaly. Like we haven't believed that forever. We've only believed that for the last century or so. And we can get into that if you want. But basically that idea that you should be doing something on a schedule. This is when you should get married. This is when you should leave your job. This is when you should get sick. You're not should you're not should supposed to get sick at 43 as a new dad, right? That's not what we should. We have to get off the should train because that expectation is very crippling. So, a big idea number 1, the linear life is dead. Big idea number 2 is that the non-linear life involves many more life transitions, okay? So you asked about life quakes. What my data show is that we all go through three dozen disruptors in the course of our lives. Now, these could be as small as twisting your ankle um, or as large as losing a loved one. And three dozen in our lifetime, that's one every 12 to 18 months. Like, that's more often than most people see a dentist. And most of these we get through relatively well. We're actually pretty good at adapting to change. But one in 10 of these becomes this massive burst of change that leads to a huge reevaluation of your life. One to 10, that's three to five in your lifetime. Their average length, this may be the signature finding in some ways, is four to five years. Okay? So you do the math, three to five life quakes, four to five years, that's 25 years, that's half of our adult lives we are spending in a state of betwixt and between. And that leads to the third idea, which is that life transitions are a skill we can and must master, okay? You or someone you know is going through a life right now, they probably don't know really how to do it, and there is a skill, it's called a life transition, and we can get better at it. And it's basically like this is a lifelong sport that no one's teaching us how to play. And what I've been my sort of life's work is now helping people navigate these periods more efficiently and more effectively and ultimately with more meaning.
0: The three findings are, are really powerful. And for those people who maybe are cringing at going, wait a minute, for four to five years, I'll be experiencing a life quake <laughs> and three dozen in my life. Well, three I, to I, five I, in I'm
1: your sure. life. Three dozen disruptors. But Sorry, three, three dozen to five, disruptors. Three to five life quakes. It <laughs> not as bad as you think. But this is the point. This is why I say at the outset, and I can, no one's ever asked me about this sentence, but I kind of like this sentence in my book, which is I kind of want to rebrand them. I want to rebrand life transitions as miserable periods that we have to grit and grind and gravel our way through. Because if you are looking at them as miserable periods, as you said, oh my God, I'm going to spend half my life in misery. You're missing the point because that's not what they are. There's going to be pain. It's going to be difficult. I'm not naive about this. I've talked to people who went through the uh, horrific things that I hope that you and no one listen to us ever has to go through. But... The human ability to navigate these and turn them into constructive, positive experiences is unimaginable and unrivaled. And as a result, there are positive things that can come out of it. So if we rebrand, that's why this book is called Life is in the Transitions. It's a William James phrase from the origin of psychology because he knew that there is life not just death and misery and depression in the middle of these times
0: well and what you're alluding to in life is in the transitions or building you know you mentioned the game it, it made me think we almost are all playing a game that none of us knew we were playing. And I, that's what I, I gleaned from your book. And all of the stories that you hear is the common humanity and how many people have gone through these experiences but just didn't know that's what we were signing up for.
1: And I think that this is now going to allow me to dig in for a second because we have a little bit of time here that often we don't talk about. Okay? And that is that the idea of linearity is a historical aberration. So what happened to me okay, is one day I pulled a book off of my shelf and the shelf moved and there was this whole other room like those secret libraries we read about when we were a kid
0: we're talking like a c.s lewis book yeah exactly
1: and so what i felt was in the other room i had thrown out my back i was a little lightheaded like it may not have exactly happened <laughs> this way but you get the point point. and what i found in the other room was this sort of basic idea that i'd never heard about which is that how we look at the world affects how we look at our lives so in the ancient world they didn't have linear time there were no clocks so they thought The way they looked at the world is agriculture, and agriculture was cyclical. So they believed the human life was cyclical, okay, to every season, turn, turn. The Bible introduces the idea of linear time. So in the Middle Ages, and I just discovered this in a whole bunch of books, they look at life as a staircase up to Middle Age and then a staircase down. And that's incredibly rigid, right? That's no new love at 40. That's no getting a new job at 50. That's no retiring and opening an Airbnb. It's just a depressing
0: slope down.
1: Once you hit middle age, whenever that is, and by the way, in the middle ages, that was much closer to your age (laughs) than mine. (laughs) So that, it's straight down. It was when science arrives in the middle of the 19th century. And by the way, what else is happening in the middle of the 19th century? Clocks become popular and wristwatches. That and the industrial factories so everybody looks at the world now as an industrial model and what is the industrial model things are on assembly lines things are on conveyor belts and so look at the first century of psychology and everything is a linear construct that's Freud's psychosexual stages that's piaget childhood development that's ericsson the eight stages of moral development that's the five stages of grief these are all linear constructs. No one talks about this, but that's what they are. And this reaches its peak in the 70s with Gail Sheehy, who writes this book that all of our mothers, and maybe in your case, your grandmother, read called Passages, which says everyone does the same thing in their 30s, the same, excuse me, the same thing in their 20s, same thing in their 30s, and then has a midlife crisis, you can't see my air quotes on this podcast, between 39 and 44 and a half. That's how precise it was
0: yeah where did they find 44.5 right because the
1: answer is dan levinson who's a professor at yale at the time talks to 40 people all men And everything is based and in fact the original idea of the midlife crisis it goes back to elliot jacques in the 1950s he said he didn't even talk to people he read biographies of famous people and he said well i can't talk to i'm not going to talk to women because you know menopause kind of throws the whole thing off well if menopause throws the whole thing off and that's now half of the population and now hello i have to tell you half of the workplace there's something wrong with these ideas but everybody bought into it that book sold 20 million copies now what's happened today is we've changed how we look at the world. We have chaos and complexity. We have networks. What is the internet doing? What is LinkedIn all about? Is connecting people. And now we know that the world is more complex, but we haven't changed how we look at our lives. So in some ways, what I'm after is to say, it's time that we understand that life is not linear. Our lives are not linear too, and reset our expectations because it's our expectations, to your point, that are where lagging here.
0: Yeah, I can say for myself, absolutely. I had that experience and I'm I'm in my early thirties and I've already had, you know, multiple lifequakes and multiple expectations crushed and shifted. And you're reminding me of my own lifequake, recognizing that we can't predict the when, and our age often has very little to do with it. And you sharing your own story and the stories that you've heard from others is, you know, I'm sure people want to know, all right, I know what a lifequake is. How do I figure out when it's going to come? And the answer is we don't right
1: well i first of all i I just love this okay so let me just i'll tell something that's actually not in my book because we're talking about it so we create all these data okay and one of the ways that i broke down life quakes was on two spectrums as you know one is voluntary involuntary and it turns out that 53 percent of our life quakes are involuntary and 47% are voluntary. So I was born in 1964, so I'm nominally at the tail end of the baby boom, though that's 20 years after the war, which says how slay that term is. But I looked at these numbers and I said, Forty-seven percent of our life quakes are voluntary. Like I'm, a, you know, I mentioned earlier, I'm a, a dad of identical twin daughters. That was a life quake. Like it's joyful. It was planned, but it was a life quake. So I look at this and I'm like, Almost half of our life quakes are voluntary. We are embracing the opportunities of the nonlinear life. I had a bunch of millennial coders on my team and they looked at this and was like 53% are involuntary. Like I'm not in control of my life. And I think one of the interesting things is there's this sort of what I call transition gap between 50 plus parents and their you know, 40 minus children because I think a lot of parents are looking at their children and saying, wait a minute, you're leaving one job and you don't know what you're gonna do next? Or you're having a baby before you get married? Or you're moving to a new or town? Or you're not
0: getting married and, at all?
1: Yeah, or you're not getting married at all? Or you're moving to a new town? And that brings us, I think, to the pandemic, okay? Because there's a, a line in my book that the smallest, I mentioned two spectrum. One was voluntary and involuntary. The other was collective and personal. Like a tiny category, 8% of lifequakes were collective involuntary. Enter COVID-19. So the pandemic is the first time in a century that the entire planet is going through a life quake at the same time. And so you mentioned this earlier, which was, okay. what did I learn? So when this book came out in 2020, I was like, oh, my God, I've been wandering around my house for half a decade saying, we should be talking about life transitions. Like, why is no one talking about life transitions? And lo and behold, my book comes out in the middle of a life transition. Okay, It seems unimaginably timed, but now you and I are having this conversation a year later in 2021, and frankly, the book seems more urgent now than it did then, because then we were still in denial. We thought we were going back. Now we know, and now look around us. What is the conversation that we are having right this moment? It's about the great reopening, okay? Back to work, hybrid work, full-time, what's it going to be, okay? It's about the great migration. It's about people moving. I got an email 10 minutes before I joined this conversation with with you that from somebody who's the administrator... Of a local institution around the corner saying, I'm in tears writing this, but I moved to Colorado when the pandemic started, and I'm now surrounded by family and friends I made in high school, and I'm not coming back to Brooklyn. Oh, and I can't believe this, but that's more important. So we got the great reopening, we've got the great migration, we've got the great resignation. My wife, Linda, who runs an organization that helps entrepreneurs around the world, she's had a dozen people quit in the last month but the applications that are coming are mind-boggling because while some people want to leave their jobs other people want to pivot to jobs with more meaning and that's where you want to go in this conversation and that's exactly right so the point is what a life quake is is a pause it's a breach in the normal that invites us all to ask is the current balance of elements of our lives that give us meaning, the balance that we want. And that's what's leading to the change. Just the fact that it was a breach in the normal. So midlife crisis, forget it. If you're between 39 and 44 and a half, you've been having a midlife crisis during the pandemic. But if you're between 22 and a half and 35, You've been having a crisis. If you've been between 50 and 75, you've been having a crisis. I can assure you, my teenagers are also in a having crisis. A crisis. <laughs> so forget the midlife crisis. It's the whenever life crisis. And that's the way to look at it.
0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing. New currencies come and go. Decades of savings lost in days. All showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough.
1: We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One.
0: The the leaving, the great resignation, the great migration, so many different things happening. It, one of the articles that I read about this a few weeks back was around the fact that people are looking for more fulfillment in their lives. And what I loved about your book was you also share that during this breach, right, from the normal, uh, it sounds devastating and hard, but really what it does is open up space for self-reflection. And what I loved was creativity. Yeah. So what I want to know because we know that the midlife crisis isn't real uh-huh, or it exists all throughout our lives, there is no mid in front of it, it's whenever life crisis. I think the pandemic is a great example of something that happens that we can all collectively agree is a life quake. How do we know otherwise, though, when we're in the middle of a life quake?
1: We've been tossing about two words here, okay? Life quake and life transition, okay? The- The distinction between them, I think, is the answer to your question. So that the way I like to think about it is that the lifequake puts you back on your heels and the life transition puts you back on your toes. So the lifequake is the blow and the life transition is the cure. So that's why the most important skill in a life transition is the first one, which is the commitment to go through it. With that answer, let me pull back and try to set a little bit more context here. Okay, so what I want to say is that these lifequakes come whenever they want, often when we don't expect them. Sometimes we initiate them. We've established in this conversation about half of them are involuntary, but half of them are voluntary. So what's an involuntary life transition? You get fired. Okay, you get a diagnosis. Your spouse cheats on you. What's a voluntary transition? You leave your job for something else. You move you cheat on your spouse right so about half of them are voluntary and about half of them are involuntary and so that is an important distinction because the pandemic is a collective involuntary transition we know that everybody listening to this conversation is going through the lifequake at the same time what's different though is how it affects you is different from how it affects me is different from how it affects her and how it affects him and how it affects they okay so everybody you know i talked to someone for example who went through 9 11 and was considering going through a gender transition and at the time this person was presenting male and this person said I'm covered in ash. I don't want to die without being my true self, even if I lose my job, and even if I get estranged from my parents. As it happened to their parents accepted them, and they got a new job, but they said, and there's a lot of people saying this now. I hear this conversation all the time. It made me realize, that something else is more important than this thing where I'm living or what I'm doing or what relationship I'm in or not being a parent. I'm scared, but I'm more scared to stay where I am than I am to go through change. So. The lifequake may be voluntary or involuntary, but the life transition must be voluntary. You have to choose to go through the steps and go through the phases that we're about to talk about in order to get to the other side. So I think that how do you know you're in a lifequake? You're going to feel, I would say, one of two things. People have one of two responses when they get into a lifequake. Either they make a 212 item to-do list and say, I'm going to get through this in the weekend. or They lie in a fetal position under the covers and say, I'm never going to get through this. No one has ever had this happen to them. Both are wrong. But how do you know you're in a life quake? You feel overwhelmed. How do you know you're in a life transition? You say it's time to do something about it.
0: I definitely have been, and only recently, have I become someone who's okay, I'm gonna let myself lay down, rest, and recognize what's going on. But it's for the sake of getting up and doing 220.
1: Well, and by the way, we'll get to this in a (laughs) second, because that turns out to be a crucial part of it. Actually, the people who are the hyper list makers actually tend to skip the emotional reckoning, which is why it's gonna come back. Later on, yeah. yeah. They're gonna gonna do it sometime along the way. And that's a big theme of mine, is when we get into that in a few minutes, about the various tools, is you don't have to do them in order. That's the kind of the big lie of the five stages of grief is that you must do them in order. It's not only a big lie; it's dangerous actually to say that first you have to have anger, then you have to. Do, no, this does not the way really they work. They come at whenever they come, and there's a lot of people who we pathologized doing things out of order as opposed to celebrating it, and that's been a huge problem of the linear life model.
0: Yeah, one of the things that you talk about is that, that I found really powerful was around you know, when we get knocked back on your heels, it's like you're in the ring and you just got that big punch is then meaning making. Mm. And what I notice in how you move through the book is you put meaning making in a place I didn't expect it. It was in the beginning slash middle, and I was expecting it towards the end. And so what I loved about that is it felt like what you were trying to say is you get knocked on your heels. You make meaning, and part of that meaning making is then moving into deciding to step back onto your toes. Well, oh, that's go through so that good. Life transition.
1: Oh, that's beautiful. Why, why were you not editing my book? That's a very, <laughs> that's a very sharp, that's a very sharp observation, Lee. I appreciate that. I'm actually, I'll just take a pause. I'm honored by that. This is a way to answer your last question. How do you know you're in a lifequake? A lifequake is a meaning vacuum. Okay, is that the normal way <laughs> that meaning moves it gets changed? Okay. The life transition is the meaning factory, right? So that is, it's the foundry. It's the process of recreating the meaning. So if you go back 100 years ago, most of the sources of meaning in our lives were given to us. You had to live where your parents wanted you to live. You had to believe what your parents wanted you to believe. You had to do what your parents wanted you to do. You had to love who your parents wanted you to love. You had to vote for who your parents wanted to vote for. And that was true in general, and that was even more true for women. And if you jump 100 years later, that's no longer true. You can live where you want to live you can do what you want to do you can love who you want to love you can have the body that you want to have you can vote who you want to vote for that is an incredible advance in a incredibly short period of historical time i mean i told you i wrote you know five books about the ancient world this has all happened in a very very short period of time the great opportunity each of us gets to write our own story the problem is that we can get bogged down. We can get writer's block writing our own story. Now I'm speaking your language, right? that's what happens. is we get overwhelmed. What I discovered, this is the thing that was most important to me, that was the single hardest thing to do, is that it turns out we have three basic gears that we can shift, okay, that help give us identity. I call these the ABCs of meaning. The A is agency what we do or make or build or create. For many of us, it's our work lives, okay? The B is belonging, our relationships, our friends, our family, our loved ones, our co-religionists, the members of our athletic teams, etc. The C is a cause, it's a calling, it's a purpose, it's something higher than ourselves. In narrative terms, I think of these as your me story, your we story, and your the story. Okay, and what it turns out is that we all have all three of these in us, but we have them in different orders. So I'm a writer and a creator. Right. So I'm very agentic. Belonging, I'm a very involved family member, a super involved dad. Cause is somewhat less important to me. Okay, my wife, Linda, who runs Endeavor, as I said earlier, she gives to her entrepreneurs every day. Then she's a co-founder and a CEO. So she's very agentic. Belonging like she tolerates the rest of us. So I'm an ABC and she's a CAB. So before I go on, what's your order of ABCs?
0: Well, you know, it's funny. When you asked me this before, I said I was like your wife, Linda. So I was C, A, B. I feel like I'm more balanced, though, between C and A. B is much further behind. So if I had to give it percentages, it'd be like 40% cause 40% agency and maybe 20% belonging. And in my own life transition or in my own life quake, it moved. It was belonging. And that has now (laughs) fallen to something similar to tolerating the rest of us. Although I do love connection. It does. It's not what doesn't serve the same need it served in my 20s, actually.
1: So that turns out to be the big insight, which is to say in these life quakes, we shift the percentages. Okay, so the way to think about this is that the ABCs of meaning are like that stat you of lady justice but there are three probably shouldn't be a lady anymore that's probably should be outmoded should human be, justice exactly exactly gender <laughs> beyond the binary justice but, the, but there are three dishes and not two and so what happens is in our lives just as we're living our lives we get imbalanced there's more pebbles or coins in one of those and so what happens in a life quake and a life transition is that you shape shift. So maybe you've been working very hard and you wanna spend more time with your family. Maybe you've been a primary caretaker or taking care of an aging relative and you becoming empty nester or that person dies, then you say, I wanna give back. Maybe you've been giving back and you burn out and you wanna do something to yourself. So what happens is in a life transition, and basically to foreshadow a book I'm working on now about work and a work transition is that we reevaluate because it's that pause and you shape shift and you rebalance the sources of meaning for the next phase of your life. And again, it's a phase, it's not gonna be forever. So if for example, something that used to be another kind of myth of the linear life is that once you get off the career ladder, you can never get back on. That turns out to be wrong, just literally flat wrong. Because, so maybe, and if you are someone thinking about pulling back because you wanna have children or you need to take care of an aging relative or you just need a sabbatical, It turns out that there is an abundance of career opportunities to coming back on because the linear life is dead and the non-linear life involves many more life transitions. Now that you have three quarters of women working outside the home, now that you have dads much more involved in parenting than we ever had in successive generations. We were talking about Council of Dads earlier. This is a huge passion of mine that I just wrote a few pieces in Harvard Business Review about this, that dads are much more involved. I actually think a big impact of the pandemic is the kind of membrane that divides work-life from family life which was already becoming more porous over time that the pandemic has blown to smithereens in part because you have everybody for a time in the at least in the white-collar world working from home in some capacity I think everybody realized that's important and the old days when managers were talking about this on LinkedIn that when the managers can say you go deal with your family problems on your own and we'll send you a fruit basket and you know, let us know when you're ready that doesn't work anymore for managers either managers have to engage with the mental health the social life the family life of their workers in a way that seemed unimaginable even five years ago So all of these things are changing the reason I bring that up is even my proposition Which I just believe with all my fiber and I know having done 400 of these interviews at this point is that non-linearity is the norm Even for people who are stable in one area, even if you have one relationship for 50 years in some ways that gives you permission to make more changes in your work life or where you live or your belief system. Even if you've had the same belief your whole life, you're gonna have nonlinearity in your health. Even if your health has been good, your work is probably. In fact, my problem with this idea that you can just graph it with a single line is that it's multi-dimensional and that you can't separate work from family, from beliefs, from sexuality, from happiness, because if, even if you're lucky enough to have stability in all of them, you're going to have instability in others. In fact, I would even go so far to say if you have too much stability, you will seek out the instability because now it's no longer stigmatized in the way it used to be. Leaving a job is not stigmatized. Changing your sexual orientation is not stigmatized. Changing your religious belief is not stigmatized. Changing your source of happiness. Maybe it's sports. Maybe it's meditation. maybe So everybody is mixing these various elements because of the opportunity of this kind of larger kind of freedom that comes with contemporary life.
0: As we keep doing this, who can imagine exactly what life will look like as we try to come back to some semblance of what we had? I really hate the phrase coming back to normal because I I don't think that's not even close to real. One of the reasons I loved you talking about meaning making and, and also making it easy with this ABC model is... I personally believe it's something that gets missed. In the midst of chaos, we miss the ability to make meaning if we can't go back and connect the dots. What did you find in your conversations was important about meaning making and what were the ways that people actually did it?
1: I was surprised by the frequency of these life disruptions. I was surprised that chaos is the norm. I was surprised by the emotional wreckage and the fear and confusion that people feel. That's all the things we've been talking about. But the biggest surprise is that there's actually a structure to these times and that understanding the structure can actually help you go through it. So as I said earlier, people just... I'm going to make a 212 item to-do list, or I'm going to lie under the covers and, and with my cat and feel sorry for myself or some combination thereof. But the truth is, if you look at enough of these times as I have, they actually have a kind of relatively straightforward structure. So life transitions, let's just start with the basic, involve three phases. These are the what I call the long goodbye, where you accept the emotions and you say goodbye to the past that's not coming back. The messy middle, where you shed certain habits and you create new ones. And the new beginning, where you unveil your new self and you update your life story. Okay, but here's the thing, okay? It turns out that each of us is good at one of these phases and bad at one of these phases. I call them your transition superpower and your transition kryptonite, okay? So maybe you don't like the, the middle, okay? And in fact, the, almost 50% of people do not like the middle because it's long and it's confusing. It's two steps forward and three steps back and then one step forward and two steps back and it's a little bit messy. But some people thrive in that phase. I talked to Pete, to consultants and to list makers and people who, who are very good at that, okay? Four in 10 don't like long goodbyes. They, I liked having that person in my life. I liked having my legs before I lost them in a Jeep accident in on the hills of north of Grand Rapids as a Costco forklift driver I, I talked to had happened to him. Maybe I liked having that particular job, okay? But some people thrive in that. Some people are good at turning the page and moving forward. Some people are very good at identifying emotions. So the point is, you're good at one of the, let me just ask you, which which of those three phases are you best at?
0: I'd say I'm probably best at new beginnings. Okay. I'd put new beginnings and then messy middle and then long goodbye. Fine, so Artist you're bad at long goodbye. So
1: fine. Me, so yeah. my feeling is start at the new beginning. This is my, this is, what's my big takeaway from this? Start at the phase you're good at. Go ahead, start the new thing. Write the book. Okay. Open the Airbnb. Okay. Start the new relationship. Okay. That's great. Transitions are hard. Start at the phase you're best at build confidence, and then go from there. The mistake people make... what I loved
0: is that you said you you made this non-linear. So so first of all... Everything you're doing is that it's non-linear.
1: You're not going to do these in order. It's impossible. The person who invented this idea of life transitions was a guy named Arnold Van Gennep, who was a German anthropologist who came up with rites of passage. And the way he described it was you're in a room, you leave the room, you walk in the hallway, and you walk into the next room, okay? That's a very linear model. That's not at all how it happens. Imagine a relationship, okay? Maybe someone's cheating. That means they're already in the new room and they haven't said goodbye to the old, okay? Or a lot of people leave, go stick their head in the new room. I'm not ready for that yet. And they go running back to the old room, okay? Or maybe you've gotten divorced and then started dating someone new and you have children. Well, you're always in the old room. You're always interacting with the person behind. So the point is, these do not happen in order. Don't stress about that. Don't pathologize that. You're not doing it wrong if you're starting out of order. Start with what you're good at. The mistake people make is then not to go back and do the part they're, they're worst at. And I think then that gets to what I identified inside these three stages, which is the seven tools of mastering a life transition. Nobody does all seven. No one does them in order. You're not gonna get a perfect grade. I'm speaking to my wife here who wants to get a perfect grade on everything. And maybe my friend, new friend, Leah, you know, gone wants to get a perfect grade on everything. You're not gonna, every, everybody wants to get better. And you can. And so let's just briefly touch on them. So the long goodbye, that's two things, that's emotions. It is an emotional experience. I looked hundreds of people in the eye and I said, what's the biggest emotion you struggled with in your time of change? The number one answer, fear. How am I going to get through this? How am I going to live without money? How am I going to pay my bills? Like, how am I going to walk? The second biggest emotion, sadness. You know, I missed that loved one. I liked having that status with that job, okay? I liked that old home before I sold it. The next is, and this was a surprise to me, shame. I'm ashamed I need help. I'm ashamed I can't pay my bills. I'm ashamed my child has an anxiety disorder. Like, whatever it is. So that. So the first one is just to accept that it's emotional. And then how do people deal with this? They write their feelings down. They do sometimes what I do, buckle down, pretend it's not there, push through. But eight in ten, eighty percent use rituals. You know, they have farewell parties, they wave flags, okay? They get tattoos. They I talked to a woman, Lisa Ray Rosenberg, who had an awful year. She went on fifty-two first dates, she had a falling out with her mother, she was a bone marrow donor to her brother, and it's like it's it's just not working. And she's what's her biggest fear? Heights, she jumped out of an airplane. A year later, she was married with a child. Like these rituals are public gestures to ourselves and to people around us that I'm going through a difficult time and I'm going to get through it. So that's the long goodbye is accepting that it's emotional and doing something to mark it.
0: I loved, uh, this was actually one of my favorites because I'm a very ritualistic person and I can recognize how I've created rituals for myself. And I was thinking to myself, I want to get a tattoo. And after, you know, as I'm still part of what your book showed me is i'm still in a lifequake actually i'm in the maybe the tail end of the five years as in not the tail end probably the last two years of it (laughs) if it's gonna last five years but on average not every single one but okay (laughs) on average yeah hopefully mine's quicker but you know this idea of ritualizing and marking i've done this in other circumstances where something big changed. you know the end of a relationship the end of a career or the end of a something to allow yourself this space to both accept it, but then to close it out feels so powerful. And it's something I think a lot of us avoid, too. It's like the full acceptance of what has happened in this long goodbye phase.
1: Well, let's go back to the ABCs of meaning. Part of it is agentic. Okay, what is a lifequake if not something that you can't control? And, and so what is a ritual? It's a small act of control. If you look at what rituals do, first of all, it's agentic. Like You're doing something to mark it often, not all of them, but many of them are interactive. A party, a trip, a journey, a ceremony. So often they are belonging-oriented, and then sometimes they're even cause-oriented, right? A lighting of a candle, a saying a prayer. It's basically, I think at its corest level, it's an act of taking charge right it it is a mechanism from going from the heels to the toes as we were talking about and what it does is prepare us what for what comes next so you asked a couple of questions about this so let me dig into it then you're in the messy middle so the messy middle involves say two, two fundamental acts one is shedding and sometimes it's things that you liked like money or status or a car or a house or uh, rituals that you have with your children, now you're an empty nester. But a lot of those things people shed are things that they don't like. I took this woman Lee Wentz and she was a nonprofit executive and she went through cancer, a divorce, and a career change at the same time. And the thing that she shed was her habit that every time she walked into the house when she wasn't feeling good, she opened the refrigerator and looked for something to eat. And she lost 60 pounds. So people shed things that they don't like, but also, so that's just a tip. If you're going through a life transition, find something, a habit, a ritual, or something you do that you don't like and try shedding it. And what that does is it makes way for, as you said, one of the most inspiring, at least to me, parts and tools of a life transition, which is creativity, which is people turn to astonishing acts of creativity. And actually, they sing, they dance, they take up ukulele, they spin a baton, they paint birdhouses. I talked to this guy, Zach Herrick, who was an army sergeant in the military, he had his face shot off by the Taliban, and he, suicide ideation, just a horrific like, my life is over. He had 31 surgeries between his nose and his chin. I just told the story in a TED Talk that I gave. And at the bottom of his life, his mother said, why don't you learn to cook? He had to have his tongue sewn back on. And so yeah, I couldn't eat spicy food. So he learned to cook, then write poetry, then paint. He says to me, I used to get out my hostility by splattering the enemy with bullets. Now I splatter the canvas with paint. And so what these acts of creativity, it's like, it, by the way, what was the number one cliche during the pandemic? Baking. We're going to sourdough our way through it. I may have been the least surprised person in America because that little act of imagining that loaf of bread is what allows you to imagine a new ritual and a new way of life and ultimately a new you.
0: Um, that that story of Zach was incredible to read and heartbreaking to read. And then to see the maybe it's cliche or maybe it's... Um, not a good thing for me to be saying this now after reading Lifequakes, but he did get a happy ending at the end of what you shared is, you know, he started to paint, he started to cook, he met someone that could look past some of the challenges he'd had with his deformities in his face. And he seemed to be moving towards what could be a really powerful life. I found myself with these stories thinking, where are they now? And and hoping for this amazing thing, but also now aware that they will have more challenges too, just like all of us.
1: Well, that's certainly true. And but yeah, i just was the story about Zach. The Wall Street Journal was kind enough to run this full excerpt of this, and they sent a photographer, and it was him next to this huge painting in an art gallery. He's having art shows now. I think he started his own company, but it is going to come again, which is why the part of the new beginning, and it doesn't surprise me now that you say it, you tend toward the new beginning because the essential act there is updating your story, right? This is fundamentally a storytelling experience, right? The way to think about a life quake is as an autobiographical occasion, okay, in which we are called on to rethink and revise and retell our life story and add a new chapter that you went through this time and this is what you learned. And that's what happened with my dad when my dad went through this period where he had wanted to end his life. I started sending him a question every Monday morning. Tell me about the toys you played with as a child. Tell me about the house you grow up, and this man had never written anything longer than a memo. He couldn't even move his fingers at the time, but he would write these answers one, two pages at a time, and this went on for the next seven years until my dad, just this month, has create has finished a sixty-five thousand word memoir, one story, one question, one life-affirming narrative at a time, and that's the essence of what it means to go through a lifequake: is to revise your life story the italians have this great expression for this which i love which is lupus and fabula <laughs> the wolf in the fairy tale if i asked you the elements or if i asked anybody listen what are the elements of a fairy tale people would say the hero <laughs> and then they would say the happy ending but that's not what makes it a fairy tale what makes it a fairy tale is the woods what makes it a fairy tale is what happens in the woods what makes it a fairy tale is the wolf And so what lupus and fabula means in italian is just when life is going swimmingly just when our dreams seem poised to come true up shows a wolf and threatens to destroy it and that wolf can be a wolf or a demon or a dragon or an ogre or a downsizing or a tornado here's the thing that i learned is that you can't banish the wolf or the wolves and that's okay because if you banish the wolf you banish the hero And if there's one thing I learned is that we all need to be the hero of our own story. And the way we become the hero is by getting over, around, or through the wolf in some way. That's the reason that we have fairy tales, after all. And why we've told them century after century, night after night, is that they turn our nightmares into dreams
0: you've had me thinking about, and I know you write a little bit about the hero's journey in here and about this. We start with this normal life and then we have this inciting incident and then we can say yes or no to the call and the lifequake given half are involuntary. You better say yes (laughs) because because otherwise I don't know what the answer is. Did you come across anyone who felt they hadn't made it through a lifequake?
1: I asked everybody how, how long that their lifequakes took and I would say that the Reassuring thing here is that 90% of the people say they got through it. And most of the 10% who didn't said they were still in it, <laughs> either because it was too soon or because they just had embraced this life of perpetual change. So, no, to me, the headline is 90% of the people say they get through their life quakes. And I think at this moment where everybody is struggling with something, where everybody lay in bed last night or had a cup of coffee this morning and looked out the window and wondered, am I going to get through this? Should I make this change? If I make this change, how am I going to sell it to my loved ones? What's going to be the impact of those around me? My message to you is I was where you are. I met people who were in places that you hope and I hope you never have to get through. That's what propelled me to go on this journey and what they're, and I believe that what they taught me can help you. So if you come on this journey with me and you meet these people, not only are you are going to read these incredible stories, but you're going to get actual, practical, doable things that you can execute tonight, tomorrow, two weeks from now, three weeks from now, three months from now. So there is knowledge out there. We can get through this together. And if I've learned anything, it is that we will.
0: Uh, Bruce, what do you believe that we all need to make it through our life quakes?
1: A language that we often feel doesn't exist. An understanding that they have structures and tools and w- ways of walking through the woods. And number three, a realization that we control the story that we tell. I'm going to give you one advice on the way out it is a simple act of storytelling, nail the ending. Nail the ending. I can tell a story about a positive thing. I got this big award at work, and they threw this party for me, and there was cake, and I got my picture in the, the front of the office as employee of the month. You know, my rival didn't show up, and my wife is too busy, and my kids didn't care. That is a up story with a down ending. I can tell a down story. My dad died, there was a wreck. But I can tell that in a way that has a more affirmative ending. Grandpa died, but you know what? The family came together. We hadn't seen each other in this way in a long time. We realized how much we enjoy being with one another. We decided to have a reunion the following year on happier terms. 80% of years ago, I wrote a column in the New York Times. Most family reunions come out of a funeral, actually. So, what that is is a way to tell a down story with an upending. You control the story that you tell about your lives, even the most miserable parts of your lives. Use positive language talk about moving forward, and find something constructive that comes out of it, that will help you get through the life quick. So number one, know that it has a language. Number two, know that it has a structure. And number three, know that it has a story that will be told about it that you control the writing of.
0: It's empowering for each of us to know that we can change the way we look at the world, change the way we look at our lives, and like you said, we can nail the ending. And if we can nail the ending, it looks like we're at least... Buckled up and ready to go before that next lifequake hits.
1: (laughs) We can get through this, everybody. I appreciate your inviting me. This was an honor and a delight, and uh, uh, we'll get through this, everybody. Trust me.
0: Absolutely. Love it. Thank you so much, Bruce. My pleasure. Our show is hosted by me, Leah Smart, and is produced by the amazing LinkedIn Media Production team. Gratitude to Dan Mills, Nicole Roach, Andy Ta, Katya Kostakova. And Lamia Bowden. Dan Lujan is the mastermind behind the scenes. Chris Eldridge did our cover art, and our music is from the ever growing collection of APM Music. If you like our show, go on Apple Podcasts to subscribe and rate us. And if the spirit moves you, leave a review. It helps our work get out to more people like you who benefit from it. And if you want to stay in touch, subscribe to our newsletter. It's on LinkedIn and it's called In the Arena. And lastly, you can feel free to email me at in the arena at linkedin.com. Thanks for coming on the journey with me and I'll see you next time.